Welcome to the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast. Explosions and fire. My name is Brian. My name is Aaron. And this week we're talking about the Satanic Panic. And we're honored to have special guest star, <laughs> Emmy Watkins, aka Emmy the Odd, to guide us through this topic. Oh, thanks y'all so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. So for our audience, Emmy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and what you do? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me be here. So my name is Emmy and I do a lot of TTRPG stuff online. Uh, primarily, I work with a group called the Adventures Pack and we have several different shows. We've done narrative based content and also our flagship show right now is called The Gauntlet, which is audience interactive Dungeons and Dragons. It's almost 100% combat. And it's very silly. We usually refer to it as whose line is it anyway, but Dungeons and Dragons. And <laughs> it's a very good time. But also, I'm just an all around nerd. Very cool. Yes. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. We're really glad to have you. Yeah, so excited. So we're going to launch into both the fun and the pain of one of the weirdest periods of Dungeons and Dragons. It still kind of lingers on today. And that is about the satanic panic. So... What are your thoughts, you know, as as a dungeon master, as a player, just overall about what you know of the Satanic Panic and then kind of how that's influenced things from your perspective? Yeah, and I'm actually thinking, too, if there's people out there who are like, huh, what is the Satanic Panic? Maybe a broad overview of what the heck is even that? Yeah. So uh, the Satanic Panic, it's to give it the broadest overview, it's a sort of nebulous period in time in between the late 70s into the early 90s where a lot of different parts of culture were tied into this idea that there was a satanic cabal that was secretly controlling anywhere from between 4 to 10% of America, depending on who you talk to, and that there were all around these child kidnapping satanic cults who were secretly controlling things. And it was particularly influential on the early history of Dungeons and Dragons because fairly early on in its concept, and especially in its ramping up in popularity, it got hit with this real hard and <laughs> got really tied up. And I know at the very least for me as a person who was very, very, very young when this was kind of wrapping up and winding down, a lot of my early perceptions and experiences with Dungeons and Dragons were entirely coded with the Satanic Panic. It was a thing that I was encouraged not to get into when I was a young nerd, despite the fact that I was nerdy from pretty much the word go. Huge geek. Early, early personality development. And but I was always told, don't do the Dungeons and Dragons. It's satanic <laughs> and scary. And it really wasn't until I was significantly older. I didn't really, I knew people played when I was younger, but I didn't really get into it until I was in college, simply because that was a thing that was just kind of in my brain was it's satanic. And even though I always thought that might be silly, it, it colored my ability to be able to talk about it in public. You just used two words there that I think are really interesting, coded and colored. And I think yeah. that's the way I think about this topic as well. Or maybe a word is like infused with. It's just in there and it's hard to extract it and see what it actually is versus the perceptions of it. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, it's I, I completely agree that it really just 
highlighted, it laid over the top of this reality. And I think that that was generally a true thing you could say about the satanic panic in general is it was laid over the top of reality because mm -hmm. ultimately none of it was true. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's where it gets interesting because, you know, a lot of the foundation for this is this more of a troubled college student who goes missing and a private investigator gets hired to find him. And it turns out that he's actually just kind of hiding in the tunnels of the college that he's at, inflicting some self-harm, going through a hard time. But they also find out that he plays Dungeons and Dragons. So, well, that's clearly the cause. It's not this child's unfortunate mental illnesses and health concerns that he's working through. It's got to be this external game that he's using as almost like a therapy and, and working with. Yeah. There is, I believe all of us ended up watching at some point in preparation for this, the same 60 minutes in or same 60 minutes piece yes. on Good this piece. part of the phenomenon. And there's a part where there, Guy, Gary Gygax at one point says during the end that it's being used as a scapegoat instead of looking at the actual like problems within the family unit. These mm -hmm. kids very often had diagnosed or undiagnosed mental issues. And instead of dealing with that, we're going to shift the blame entirely. Exactly. And I grew up having such reverence, being taught such reverence for 60 minutes because it was like real journalism. Oh, yeah. as, I'm, as I'm watching it, I'm like, are you kidding me right now? And you just said it, Aaron. It's like a hit piece. It's not, there's no moment where we're like, hey, let's examine if this is true or not. They just go hard at this is actually true. Oh, yeah. yeah and then yeah. they talk about teenage suicide. As For if sure. Somehow we missed the segment where they connected the dots right. clinically yeah. to a game or anything specifically. Yeah, Ed Bradley keeps bringing up like saying, "Oh, well, these are the facts." What do you what do you say to the facts? There's no correlation causation thing where it's just saying, "Well, you know, you have millions of players, but twelve of them have had some issues of self harm." Man, you know, Ed Bradley, I love that guy too. I was really, it was really hard for me to watch that. Yeah. It really was very stunning to watch the emotional disconnect. And I also do think that that says something very significantly about how powerful this belief was in America, that mm -hmm. there was this exceptional leap of faith that just completely left any and all numbers behind. At one point, they are pointing out that, that they'd tied 12 or 13 different suicides of youths, of young people in America to also, they, they had also played Dungeons and Dragons. And they were like, well, this is a fact and that they, these things must then be related. And then they also point out that there are between three and four million Dungeons and Dragons players at that time that the interview was done, which I think it was 1985. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, so this, these 12 or 13 is definitely definitive proof. Those are high numbers. Right. It was, like, it was so stunning. It was like, that's, I don't see how those two things correlate at all. But I also have uh, 30, almost 40 years of separation on this fact now. And I can look back at it with a certain amount of incredulity, but like incredulity. Oh my goodness. But uh, at the time, it was such a mass hysteria. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And watching that piece was so brutal it was mentally taxing because it was so heavy and it's such a brutal thing to think about teenage suicide and seeing these families in pain right it was actually un very unpleasant to watch the episode because i think it's easy to look back and giggle and laugh about the satanic panic but watching it is hard yeah, yeah. and I, I think that the thing that makes it so difficult is that we're looking at it through the lens of a more 
awakened society where we understand mental health issues a lot more, where we know a lot more about getting help and providing help and seeing warning signs, especially as family members. And you're watching these people, especially Patricia Pulling, who we'll talk about in a minute, are ignoring those things and ignoring that her her son is likely crying out for help in a lot of ways. And it's not Dungeons and Dragons. And instead, she's like, well, my son died because his game master placed a curse on him. And it's like, okay, well, all right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do completely agree. I mean, we're talking about during the 70s and 80s, we're talking about people who had come from their parents having fought sometimes in World War II or having fought in Vietnam and having to deal with a very different view and lens through which we look at therapy. That was just a different time period. It was like we didn't talk about PTSD or anything like it, that. We talked about pull yourself up, man up, deal with it. And instead of actually talking about maybe we should go to therapy and talk about our depression, was not it wasn't necessarily on the plate. And I do agree that as much as watching some of those interviews can be kind of hilarious, you also are getting a weird sort of snippet into people's lives because right. they're so willing to talk about the fact that they very frequently didn't know that their children played D&D, the fact that their children had very few friends outside of this subculture, and that they didn't really understand what their children were doing. And they're very obviously in pain themselves. And it's very, it's funny, but it's also deeply sad. Yeah, that's a good point, too. It gives you a glimpse into a culture that is not equipped to talk about mental health for right. ourselves or for others. Yeah. And it, I mean, it even mentions how she finds all of his little notebooks from D&D where he was just writing notes from playing the game and his little player's handbooks. And she's like, well, this clearly made sense. This is the smoking it. gun. She <laughs> yeah. found the notebooks. Notebooks and notebooks. And I think that there's the other thing that really bothered me with that particular interview that I, and I think also sort of trails throughout in that interview, there's, some experts pulled up. They pulled up Gary Gygax and some other creators of the game. But they also pulled up this group of kids playing Dungeons and Dragons and were essentially asking these kids to be experts, expert <laughs> witnesses, which was very hypnotically weird when they could have just really asked the creators more of these questions about what is the game? How does it work? But they were asking these kids instead. And a, a person who has played Dungeons and Dragons for any period of time my house is filled with notebooks because mm -hmm. I don't remember all the NPCs names. I just simply don't. I don't remember where they are. I don't remember what they're like. I don't know the spelling. I have 6,000 different weird notes on the tavern and what the outlay, outlay <laughs> of it is. And all of that, you, you take notes. You take a bajillion notes when you play Dungeons and Dragons. It's not a weird cult thing. It's a memory thing. Yes. <laughs> and if they had asked anyone these questions, anyone who actually had knowledge, like, okay, so this kid had 6,000 notebooks. That seems a little bit obsessive. Why would he have a bunch of notebooks? Okay, let's ask someone who's played Dungeons and Dragons. Do you have a lot of notebooks? Okay, why? But those weren't questions that were being asked. Mm-hmm, exactly. It actually, and I don't want to go on a tangent here, but it reminds me of this really infamous lawyer it's Jack something. I can't remember his last name, but he has sued so many video game manufacturers for causing murder and suicide. 
And it's the same sort of moral panic idea that if a kid plays Grand Theft Auto, that they're going to go and carjack somebody and shoot them. Or mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous nonsense where we try and take the ills of society and foist them upon something that's actually pretty wholesome. Yeah, and yeah. Aaron, I'm glad you said that because that was something that I was thinking about too was this moral outrage. Has mm-hmm. I've seen this before. So I, I went to film school and this happened in early film history too where the the moral decay of the society was starting to be blamed on film. It's happened in comics and it's mm-hmm. happened in video games as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to foist off changes in society that people don't necessarily understand into whatever is popular at the moment. And it very often stems entirely from an ignorance of what this medium looks like, what it's reflection of. You know, what I completely forgot about, but I'm just remembering now because I had someone bring it in and I got to see it. Have y'all ever gotten a chance to look at the Chick Track, Darkest Dungeons? Yes. He has not seen it, but I've definitely seen it. It's beautiful. I, I had a friend who actually managed to get a hold of a copy. You can't get it anymore because they're on to us. I don't know the, what uh, this is doing. So yes. chick tracks are these horrible comics that are drawn by this violently evangelical Christian who just talks about people going to hell and, you know, being anything. It sounds like, like exactly the opposite. Yeah, it's it's yes. like three panel comics and they're they have horrible stereotypes around you know jewish people around people in the lgbtq plus community they're horrible comics but you can tell us about that one because that's a great one it's they're really really bad and i I will say uh, what i was saying what they're on to us you can still order them through his estate but they're aware that a bunch of DD nerds were getting them ironically so now you have to be a registered ministry and you can order only order them in like the ten thousand <laughs> in the ministry to get it <laughs> yeah and so they're quite expensive now to actually get but i had a friend who had one and i was just thrilled to be able to get to read it through but like almost every other satanic panic era bit about dungeons and dragons it, it's about this these two small town Christian girls who go to college and end up hanging out with a bunch of D&D people and then, you know, summoning actual demons and one of them commits suicide and because her character won't hit a certain level in Dungeons and Dragons or something. Because, oh yeah, she can't cast true magic properly or something. It's all deeply nonsensical and again, really leans into this very heavy belief that people playing Dungeons and Dragons were actually trying to summon demons and that they seem to have this disconnect with reality that at some point they thought their characters were real and that they couldn't discern reality anymore and that they were going to try and summon actual demons, which is another thing in that (laughs) 60 Minutes interview that a guy says with a straight face. But the Chick Track is also very much like that has that like they're going to cast real magic and really summon demons some very well-meaning film folks actually also made a movie of this chick track uh they had to make it very honestly because they didn't want to get in trouble with the estate so they had to just say it's 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 real but it's very much clearly not but it's if you don't want to pay a bajillion dollars to read it you can go watch the movie and it's basically the same thing but yeah I do think that that's an interesting thing that also happens with the satanic panic is this very genuine real belief in magic and mysticism that I don't think a lot of Dungeons and Dragons players have, at least not about 
the game itself. For sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I wanted to ask you, for me, there's this supreme irony with the satanic panic and, and the legacy of it, which is every experience that I've ever had with D&D and role-playing games is almost the exact opposite. I find in actual gameplay camaraderie. I find a certain sweetness, a certain almost fragility where we're, we're supporting each other. We're coaxing each other into, no, no, say, say it, say what you wanted to say, you know, and, and trying to find our voices and collectively find each other's voices in a way that's really nurturing and wholesome. And so to me, the very idea that we're summoning demons is so far from any experience that I've ever had. And so I'm wondering, you know, have you felt the same and how, how do you think about that component? Absolutely. I think that it's very complicated because I also think that it's one of those things that can go sideways. I think that it can also be a place where if you do end up at a table with people who don't have that respect for it, it can go off rails. But I do think that one of the more beautiful things about TTRPGs is that it should, at the very least, require a level of respect and camaraderie and friendship because it's a very vulnerable space where you're having to do a whole bunch of math, perform a character, and creatively improvise a story together. And when everyone comes to a table with that in mind, that I'm going to love and support my friends in this adventure, it creates a kind of friendship that's so incredibly deep and sacred. Like mm -hmm. when I've sat at a good table where everyone has committed to that fully, I have made lifelong friends. Uh, it's very rare for me to play tabletop games with people I don't know anymore, largely because I do and I, I require that level of safety at a table that I play. And I'm very strict about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I have I know I have a couple of friends who I didn't know before I played D&D &D, and I'm so close. I have friends who their their DM officiated their wedding. I was there and it was possibly one of the most adorable things I ever saw. It was beautiful. And, and they didn't the just from a satanic thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And they wanted that not only because he was their DM, but because he was someone who had facilitated so much friendship and love in their lives. Like it wasn't because it was nerdy. It was because they thought of him as someone who had a particular amount of gravitas and friendship that he could facilitate this part of their lives in front of their families. And that's so sacred and beautiful to me. And it's very, very distressing to me that people on the outside have such a hard time seeing that. I do think that it's also something that has, while it's always been one of D&D's greatest strengths, it's also something that I do think that TTRPGs in general are having just a little bit of growing pains with, which is that more non-traditional nerds are coming in. And I think that that's great. I love that because one of the more beautiful things about this community at its root is that it was created by people who didn't necessarily have a home in many traditional hobbies. And so making sure that everyone feels like they can have safe tables, that everyone can find a place for their voice to fit in is so magical and perfect to me. But I also think that that comes back to why the Satanic Panic was able to kind of grip onto this is because they were less traditional folks hanging yeah. out at these tables. And instead of, again, coming back to that place of ignorance, not able to understand it, not able to deal with it, must yeah. be demons. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I mean, that's, something, 
that I find heartbreaking about that original thing as a, as a dungeon master myself is that I've worked for a long time on making inclusive tables and that's allowing anybody to be there, but then also excluding people who don't respect that and having that safe space and working through whatever it is, whether if somebody wants to play a character, they can't be in real life. Like one of the things I was pointing out with Patricia, with Brian earlier is that she gives like this whole litany of things that are in the game that are horrendous. And they're all horrible things that you would think of, like cannibalism and torture. But then she says homosexuality. And I'm like, okay, well, one of those is not like the other. And what <laughs> you're seeing, honestly, is somebody who, if they're playing that in the game, it's because it's 1985 and you can't be openly homosexual at this moment anyway and not feel judged, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see these beautiful, fragile people coming together, finding strength amongst themselves, and then having somebody kick them and say, well, no, you're wrong. You shouldn't be doing this because here's Satan. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it like coming back to that, that exact point, the, the non-traditional masculinity that you would see in a lot of the men who would play Dungeons and Dragons, mm -hmm. uh, kind of masculinity that wasn't necessarily supported in 1985. Right. It's very, very prevalent. And so... Good old Patricia pulling it. We should probably <laughs> take a second and talk about her. I know sure. she wrote a book and I kind of want to read it all the way through, but I also, I don't want to hurt myself. And she's a deeply anxiety inducing human. She is. And, and my, I guess I wouldn't say favorite, but the thing that I think about her the most is her group that she founded called Bad, which I'm pretty sure she might have been the founder and only member, just like the hair club for men sort of thing, where it was, it stood for bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. And she actually used this, and this is the hard part for me, to sue not only TSR, the original creators of D&D, but also the principal of the school because the principal was this kid's dungeon master and this principal put a curse on him in the game. So I see a dungeon master who's a principal who's reaching out and trying to have fun and help a troubled kid. And now he's getting sued by this woman who doesn't know how to handle her own grief. You know? Yeah. It was a different father. I keep wanting to pronounce it bad. There's two D's, not two A's, <laughs> but there's something about the ridiculousness of this calling exactly. it bad. It's... It's deeply stunning. And yeah, she, I know she lost a lot of credibility eventually mm -hmm. because she was trying to pull up all, all these statistics. I guess at one point she said something about 8% of people sur surveyed were Satanists. And she, they said, How did you get that number? And she said, Well, 4% of youths and 4% of adults. It was pointed out to her that that's not how statistics works. <laughs> but in, in any case, it, it was just stunning, but it was, she really did lead that one woman crusade very, very loudly. Uh, and again, it was very clear that she had a lot of moral issues with society in general that really didn't have anything to do with this hobby. She was just kind of loud and, and angry. And I imagine that she probably was really fun to be around at parties, but also probably just really fun to be around as parent and a kid i, I don't know <laughs> yeah i as i watched that segment i found myself gripped with anxiety that i maybe haven't felt since middle school high school mm -hmm. around the extreme judgment mm -hmm. and misunderstanding 
of parental figures for who I was and what I was trying to do. And then what it, I guess, looked like from the outside. Right. That's why it was so hard for me to watch that episode. Yeah. That and my extreme admiration for Ed Bradley. (laughs) That's for sure. The, The other thing I think is a tangible frustration I have with it is that if you are an American or a Canadian or even um, from the UK, your tax dollars have gone towards funding research on finding out whether there is causality in kids playing D&D and then being violent or suicidal. You have actually spent money to the CDC or the NHS to actually find out whether or not this happens. And on top of that, even as recently as 2010, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals actually upheld a ban on D&D in, it looks like it's Wappen Correctional Institution, where they were saying that the inmates are not allowed to play D&D because the sense of fantasy and escapism makes them violent and want to leave the prison. And we're still spending money as recently as 13 years ago on finding out whether or not D&D is destroying people just stuns it just stuns and i really and the other thing that i think comes back to this for me is we're talking about disconnect from reality and everyone keeps saying oh these dnd players have got a disconnect from reality where i can't see a greater disconnect from reality than that i really cannot i i just simply don't understand i my friend sent me this great meme recently. The Satanists, or parents disappointed to find out that Dungeons and Dragons not Satanists, but mostly improv and math. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't Imagine know. Imagine if you were a Satanist and you actually showed up, you'd be like, "This is lame. This is no, so boring. Pretty chill, right? Like, they're, they're yeah, I feel like, I mean, this I, is actually pretty all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I. It just, it really does boggle the noggin. I do also think that there's something to be said for this is not gone. This perception, like you were just saying, that was 10, 15 years ago. This perception's not gone. I know I, up until about six months ago, I actually had someone ask me in reference to their kid wanting to learn to play Dungeons and Dragons if it was a demonic game. So Same. So to stick in a slightly different direction, I want to ask a question of both of you. Was the satanic panic bad for D&D? What are your thoughts there? Well, I would start off by saying it wasn't bad from a financial perspective initially because they made like four times whatever they were making before in a single year. But I do believe there is such a thing as bad press and bad press that does negatively affect outcomes. And I, I would rather see tax dollars be spent on finding out how many vulnerable youths and adolescents were damaged by the idea that they are even more ostracized than they already were for playing a game that brought them together with their friends. Completely agree. I also think that it kept it out of the hands of a lot of people who maybe could have used it. Honestly, I will point to myself as an example of that. Like I absolutely know as a person who had a hard time maintaining a friend group and finding hobbies that really worked for me when I was younger. And it was a thing that was a very deep concern was making sure I had an integrated group as a kid who was neurodivergent and struggled with a lot of these things. This was a hobby that absolutely, the reason I fell into it so hard was it really was good for me. And that this is the kind of a kind of hobby that really it, it provides a community instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And just by the very nature of it, it's an 
in-person communicative creative writing hobby that that instantaneously provides friends. And if you are in a position where you're already having problems communicating with your family or your friends or your church or whatever it is that you you really do need that support group. You need to be talking to them about the things going on in your life and you're already having a hard time. And then maybe you start picking up this hobby. Maybe you start playing and that adds another level of things you're not talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think if I can just get outside of the D&D lens for a second, mm. because when I started game mastering, I didn't start running D&D. I started playing Vampire the Masquerade. And now, oh, yeah. granted, that's when it was a little bit more, hey, let's reintroduce the dark stuff into TTRPGs. There's never a moment for me where we were playing this very dark game with very dark themes that had a lot of stuff that would have been probably, I mean, these books would have been set on fire in the 80s from how salacious they are. But at no point did I feel that my tables were unsafe, that my players were unsafe, that they were overly weird, that they weren't doing what the, like, that they were somehow on the fringes of society and at any moment now going to bring upon some supernatural entity. Yeah. Or that they were going to, it was going to tip the scales. Right. And it was going to spark this evil. Exactly. Yeah. And I would say that, that that coloration does absolutely go down through, through pretty much all TTRPGs. I mean, I know a lot of people who I, I can tell you distinctly about all the different engines of TTRPGs that are out there right now, but for a lot of people, all of them are D&D. And so I completely agree that like at some point, no matter what, it absolutely has this effect on these books. And some of the darker ones, oh man, yeah, the Vampire of the Masquerade books are a lot. But I also think that you know, this is, you know, I hadn't thought about this until this moment, but it's also something that I think that we've talked a lot about making sure your tables are safe and inclusive. And some games do absolutely run into some darker stuff. And some people want that and some people don't, which is mm-hmm. no matter what, it's totally fine as long as you are having fun and making sure your environment is safe. But I also think that that's a conversation we've had to kind of make up how to do. And that, again, has come with a lot of more modern lenses of understanding about what people enjoy modern reactions to therapy and things like that but i also think that it's it, it that's a a conversation that has happened differently because of the fringe nature of this making sure everything's more, safe yeah and maybe more intensely because of the satanic panic and the things that we've gone through is mm-hmm. to take extra care to ensure that everyone's feeling all right and that mm-hmm. everyone's having fun and that we're getting what we each want out of it yeah, yeah uh, for sure and I, I think that when it comes to like, you know, you're talking about, Emmy, with the darker stuff and the tables where you're safe to be a little unsafe is that you have those conversations that you wouldn't normally have. If you could imagine these people are truly some sort of weird demon worshipers or Satan worshipers that I, whenever I run a game that's a little bit in the dark side, for example, running Monster of the Week last week, I will give you primers that, hey, this game might be a little bit dark. What's your what's your tolerance for that? I don't want to take you down a road you don't want to go down. Let's have fun together. And that's where a lot of pausing with respect comes from between these kids who you have no idea how mentally and emotionally mature they are when they're going yeah. through the TTRPG process. Or what triggers they may have. Like we've talked mm-hmm. a couple times about Curse of Strahd, and I remember my DM for that 
would start the beginning of the session by saying, okay, this module includes X, Y, and Z. And we'd be like, oh, what? Okay. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> but thank you for telling me that. And also we can opt out of some of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's very important, especially at the end of the day, this comes back to, it is a game. Mm -hmm. The whole point is to have fun and, you know, have a little bit of escapism. And again, blurring that line between wanting to escape and thinking reality is something that is completely different. Just again, coming back to that ignorance of not understanding what that difference means to people. Yeah. But it's a thing I take for granted because I, I, I do understand what that line is pretty innately. And it's, it's very strange and surreal to watch people who just simply do not understand. Yeah. And then have them control the narrative for a decade plus. So Brian, do you have any closing questions for us you want to ask? So, I mean, one more question for you. So in the, in the past couple of episodes of our podcast, I have compared Aaron to a paladin, which I also mm. played. Yes. yes. And he, yeah, he, he definitely plays paladins. And so I had a particular sort of a sense of what a paladin is and what they embody both in the game and as a person. So, and so I heard, I've heard that you play or you've played a paladin before. So I, I wanted did. to hear your thoughts on that. And I, what, what you know of Aaron, do you find him paladin-like in any way? <laughs> I could see it. I could see it. Charismatic, wise, confident in your beliefs. I can absolutely see it. Mm. Nice. When <laughs> I framed it, I began the conversation by saying paladins are annoying. And I didn't, understand, <laughs> I didn't understand it after the episode. He was like, man, that was brutal. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I listened to it and I was like, I literally oh. said paladins are annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never take on paladins. I love that. So I did. I did actually on the Adventurers Pack. So we're in season two of our show, The Gauntlet, and I DM season two, but the DM is also a rotational spot season per season. In season one, I was a player and I was our paladin on that season for so for two years. If you go back, it's all on YouTube. You can watch me be the goofiest paladin, Fest Shield of Kelimbor. But one of the things about paladins that I love, especially I was a forever rogue player for so many years. And then I broke out of that really, really hard and started to try and stretch my creative brain. Another thing that Dungeons and Dragons does very well. And try and play classes that I'd never done before and concepts I'd never played before. And I've had that idea of a paladin kicking around for such a long time. And one of the things that I really do enjoy about that class is it's a defender of a belief. Mm. And you can sort of decide what that belief means for your paladin. No matter what, no chaotic or lawful, all of that aside, you don't have to be lawful anymore. They removed that in 5e. But no matter what, you have an inherent belief in something that's so strong that it drives you to defend that belief. And that can be really, really fun. It's also a hell of a plot maker, especially <laughs> if your fellow players don't share that belief and they don't yes. understand especially the rogue huh uh-huh yeah the There's warlock like rogue and i in your mind too <laughs> yeah like, the I... warlock rogue and i had <laughs> conversations but <laughs> that was one of the things is like and that person was played by one of my oldest friends in the world and so we got to have these hilarious conversations and just be complete frenemies because their belief system was completely different than mine and so as a class they're so interesting and fun to just toss into a mix because no matter what, 
they have to stick to that because otherwise everything that they do completely falls apart. And there's there's an inherent inflexibility in mm -hmm. a power. And for, and for better or for worse. Yep. Like you can choose that belief to be good. You can choose that belief to be bad. You can choose that belief to be complicated. Mm. Uh, and no matter what, it's going to make for some just delicious plot. <laughs> it's so good. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess in closing, we first want to say thank you so much, Emmy, for being on here. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you do get a chance to check out all of Emmy's great stuff, we'll put in a, a link on our uh, Instagram as well so you can see it because it's it's highly thank entertaining. You. Thank um, you. It's very goofy, but very, very fun. And I cried <laughs> at the end of season one. I was at, I miss that paladin every day. So <laughs> check it out. Maybe Very that nice. paladin can could appear at one of our tables one day. Oh, she's good fun. She's she's Batman, basically, was the running joke. She's not really, but she started out as a Batman clone, so she's fun. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us this week. Emmy the Odd, it was such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you again so much. This was so much fun and one of my favorite topics. Excellent. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.